Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the traditionalist. The namesake of this show is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Wayne and Marsha Busk Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor Davis Hanson is many things. Farmer, classicist, military historian, husband, grandfather, father. He's also an essayist at American Greatness. He is the editorial guru. I don't know if that that's the official title, but he is the boss of the Hoover Institution's very important online journal, Strategica. Check it out at Hoover. Also check out Victor Hansen, S-O-N, VictorHanson.com. That's his website, Private Papers. And when you go there, you'll find a treasure trove of original stuff. You're not going to find it anywhere else. I also encourage you to go there to find the link to Victor's forthcoming new book. It's coming out in October. It's going to be very important. Sure, it's going to be a bestseller. Uh, it's called The Dying Citizen. I'm Jack Fowler. I'm the former publisher of National Review, the co-host. I'm also the director of American Philanthropics Center for Civil Society. Victor, I do want to say thank you that you, when I've given my title, you've never laughed at the association of my name. I haven't even civil. said, <laughs> I haven't said Catholic monarchist in residence either. Uh, true, true. <laughs> well, we'll forgive you for that. Uh, hey, two other things before we get to the agenda. Um, if you're on Twitter, at VD Hansen, that's Victor's Twitter page. And if you're on Facebook, two suggestions. Look for VDH's Morning Cup. And there's also a great fan club, the Victor Davis Hansen fan club. Why don't you follow them? And there's tons of links in there to uh, Victor's various appearances, etc. And again, again, always victorhanson.com. There's something magical about unboxing. 
When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Victor, we got a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about today. There's so much happening on this episode of The Traditionalist, which we're recording on June 11th, 2021. Uh, you have two important pieces in American greatness. One is titled The Lethal Wages of Trump Derangement Madness. That's your big essay. And then the smaller piece is This Isn't Your Father's Left-Wing Revolution. Uh, we have Kamala Harris going to Guatemala and kind of screwing up. We have Joe Biden now in England for the G7 summit. We'd like to get your take on these uh, foreign policy efforts by uh, the two top people in this administration. We have inflation. Thank you, Joe Biden. Anthony Fauci says, essentially, I am science. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Um, there's a really good piece. Uh, Victor, you raised it. And so we're going to talk about it on the show that a guy named Dave Marcus has written for Fox, uh, Fox's website. And he's talking about uh, the third wave, the new third just born wave of the future of conservatism. I'd like to get Victor's take on that. What else do we have? Omar, Congresswoman Omar, attacks Israel in the United States. She's counterattacked by a dozen Jewish Democrat members of Congress, and she counters the counterattack. So let's, get, let's look into what she's up to. Another lie has been exposed for being bogus. Donald Trump cleared out Lafayette Park last June for a photo op. Just not true. But Victor, let's begin today's podcast with a, something I didn't put on the list of things we we're going to be talking about, and that's this Jeffrey Tubin lunacy. So, you know, quickly he was he was uh, caught in a Zoom call to with colleagues um, performing a onanism. I think that might be the theological term, and. Uh, but yesterday he was back on CNN with uh, getting, I don't know, has he been rehabilitated? Our friend Megyn Kelly tweeted uh, yesterday that if a woman had been caught doing what Jeffrey Tubin had done, there's no way in hell, no way in hell she would have been rehabilitated back on TV in, in short, short order. You know, Brian Williams lies his pants off. He goes, I don't know where he goes for a little time, probably some spa. And then you know, he's got a show on again. Tubin does this. He's rehabilitated. Victor, what do, you, what do you think, if anything, of this? Well, in the ge general cosmic sense, it really, when all of us say, how can people believe this stuff, this woke stuff, this left-wing craziness? And the answer is they don't need to believe it. It's just like you and I going into the insurance office and buying insurance policy. And that's what wokeism or leftism or whatever you want to call this is. So when Jeffrey Tubin is a woke New Yorker writer, CNN, left-wing guy, then, and he can attack Kavanaugh and he's useful for this agenda, then you get insurance against this stuff. And that's why, you know, Joe Biden can go around the country and let, lecture us on the N-word and, and then, and you know, racist this and racist that when his own son is, you know, emailing just horrific uh, racist Right. commentary and using the N-word. That's the general thing you come away, but I don't quite believe him when he said it was an accident. I don't think he goes, a person goes onto a Zoom. There's 24 hours in the day, Jack, 
And if you want to masturbate, if that's what he wants to do, you don't just pick a, a one particular time when you know there are going to be younger women on that call who are going yeah. to be looking at you. Because that's a sign of an exhibitionist and a narcissist that really has, is so deluded that he thinks, given his godhead, that somebody is going to look at that, i.e. a young woman, and be so impressed they're going to call him up or text him and say, hey, and that's how sick and deranged he is. And uh, so remember, we in this council culture the left has created, they destroy people's businesses. They destroy people's careers. They destroy people's livelihoods on a tweet 10 years ago. Right. Not something like this. So, yeah, I mean, he, he took out woke insurance and then he got on TV and he lied and he said that uh, he didn't know the Zoom camera was on. And then he's. He's, uh, he's been very miserable. Of course, when these leftists give these apologies, within a nanosecond, it becomes uh, all about themselves. So what did he say? Oh, I suffered, and it was so miserable, and I had to write a book, and oh, oh look at this. But, you know, they gave me, a, they gave me another chance. It's, you know, I don't, you know, well, he should come down to Bakersfield and Fresno or see how people live in what is real dra- uh, melodrama and tragedy, not this psychodrama. Yeah, he was uh, kind of a deplorable guy without the incident. Yeah, he was. Absolutely. I mean, he remember that Jeff Greenfield's daughter was a colleague of his, Jeff Greenfield, the sort of noted and distinguished writer on the left, who all of us read when we were younger. And his daughter had an affair with a Mary Jeff, Jeffrey Tubin was pregnant. And then he sort of strong-armed her to get an abortion. When she refused to do that, he claimed that he wasn't the father and wouldn't pay child support and ended up in court in which his legal genius couldn't overcome the facts and he lost or he was forced to pay. So he, when he says that they've gone through my whole career and they didn't find anything else, I don't quite believe that. I think there's a lot of stuff there, but they don't rise to the occasion. I don't want to use that word rise to the occasion, but, <laughs> but I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let's uh, switch to, uh, let's pick Anthony Fauci. I mean, we talk about him every week. So this week, he responded to a criticism. I, I think it was from Senator um, Senator Black. I'm, I'm from Tennessee. I'm, I'm drawing a blank as I usually do. Anyway, his response essentially was talking to uh, CNBC, Chuck Todd. Um, if you attack me, you are attacking science. I don't think those were the exact words, but pretty damn close. And Victor, you mentioned narcissism. I don't know. That seems pretty textbook to me. What do you think about Anthony Fauci this week that, you, that maybe you haven't thought previous weeks? Yeah, he was like Louis the Fourteenth, wasn't the state is me. I'm the state. I'm science. And of course, uh, he, he was smarter by half. We start with a fundamental, I, I use the word of the left, existential problem Fauci always had. And that was when this whole thing started in China, he knew that it was illegal and it had been to finance gain of function research to enhance viral toxicity, lethality, transmissibility. Okay. And there had never really been any gain of function virus that showed tangible benefits to the medical community. At least the, the defenders of that research couldn't make that argument. Right. So what did he do? He funneled it to Dr. Daskic and then the Echo Health people, maybe six million. And by the way, they got over 100 million in various government contracts. And then with the foreknowledge, apparently, that they were funneling it to 
bat lady and the Wuhan gain of function research going on at that level four biology lab. Okay, that was known, Jack, right at the beginning, January, and there was a little leak. And, and anybody who who put up antenna and transmitted that story was considered a nut, a creep, mm-hmm. a conspiracy. And he he put a, a a damper on that. And then if you think about that that story, I think you can calibrate all of the iterations of Dr. Fauci. In other words, at the very beginning, his narrative was, well, this is nothing. Don't don't put your eye over there at Wuhan. It's nothing. It's not transmissible. And then when you've got to trust the WHO, they've already come out. China's a partner. Don't worry. And then it, when it started to be, that narrative was no longer tenable is well, I don't know if you want to go to all this trouble about lockdown and masks, because masks, you know, and then when that narrative is no longer turnable, then it was, oh my God, this thing is going to get out of control. If it's out of control, then there might, you know, trace my fingerprints back to where uh, I signed that, <laughs> that uh, grant. So then it was, oh, wow, masks are really important, and we've got to get two masks, and we've got to lock down, and we're going to, this this thing's going to stop. And then it was Donald Trump. So then Fauci thought, you know what? I can regain fides and credibility. I'll be the non-Trump advisor, the anti-Trump. So he kind of triangulated and stabbed Trump in the back all the time. He went to Fox. He went to CNN. He, and then as soon as Trump lost, the, the, the mask came off and he revealed who he really was. But this whole charade was an effort to suppress the fact of this horrific truth, because, you know, we're talking very casually about this, Jack, and our listeners are, you know, they know the story, but if you just came from Mars and you were an alien and you just looked at that, somebody somewhere would say, wait a minute, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which was the the lead investigatory federal bureaucracy that set policy on this epidemic, the head of that, had approved funding from the U.S. government through a firewall to this laboratory, which this virus first took its toll and then denied that that virus laboratory was the source or the font of this epidemic. Is that what you're trying to tell us? Because if you, again, if you strip away all of this, somebody somewhere is going to make the argument, if the United States had not enhanced and funded this crazy bat lady and her team, then maybe they wouldn't have had this virus. And if that were to be true, you can see where it's going to lead. And that's why he's he's saying, you know, he's on TV nonstop. He's panicking. He's 80 years old now. He doesn't have a lot of time to get the narrative. And all of a sudden, he went from a national icon, folk hero, the anti-Trump rationalist, and, you know, and he helped demonize and destroy somebody who was a very good advisor to Donald Trump, Scott Atlas, and who's his colleague of mine, Hoover, and whose uh, advice about lockdowns and the pandemic are being shown after a torturous six months, they've been shown to be correct. So he really tried to destroy a lot of people's career. And now suddenly uh, that hubris has earned him nemesis. And I don't know what the dimensions or the, the final consequences will be of this story, but if it is verified that he knowingly gave U.S. money and routed it through Echo Health. And that money ended up enhancing viruses in China. And then he denied it. 
both under oath in congressional testimony and in emails to colleagues. And he was shown in emails to be frantic to get the narrative down. And he enlisted people to sign petitions or to come forward. Then he's in big trouble, I think. And I don't mean just mean big trouble in the sense of a public relations disaster, big trouble uh, legally. Well, Victor, um, let's move on yet. But you just mentioned um, untenable narratives. And we have yet another narrative that proved uh, untenable, bogus a lie. And that was the uh, Lafayette Park fracas from, I think it was the end of June or early July last year with the story uh, that predominated in the media was that Donald Trump essentially got uh, federal law enforcement goons to uh, bully protesters to clear the park for a photo op. It just was not the case. Victor, would you like to talk about this? Yeah, it's one of these, it joins this uh, this catalog now, Jack. We've had the Wuhan lab narrative that turned out to be false, that it was of uh, an animal origins of the virus because Donald Trump said the opposite. And then we had the hydroxychloroquine completely useless because Donald Trump said that it had utility. And that's been debunked, I think. There's a lot of studies that have come out showing that it does have efficacy. And then we had the Russian collusion uh, narrative ho hoax. And that, that was a product of Donald Trump indoor, uh, opposing these crazy hoax. So now we have this idea that he deliberately militarized the Capitol to prepare his photo op with the Bible and all of that following the burning of the uh, St. John's Episcopal Church. And that was all over the, it, and it really resonated, Jack, because it was not just he had a photo op, and but that he was going to bring in federal troops and he was mm -hmm. going to militarize. And, and we had all of these outraged generals. Remember, I, I, won't, I won't mention right. all of their, their names because some of them I work with, but they all said things like, this is a landmark, event that he has destroyed the separation between the military and the civilian control and he deliberately manipulated our fine finest men in uniform so that he could have a photo well that was a complete lie so what i'm getting at jack is okay it's a complete lie so where are we there does I, I i turned in to MSNBC and CNN last night. And did they say, we're sorry? No. You know what they said? They said, well, the inspector general must be pro-Trump and he's not asking the right people. And so, so they don't even accept uh, that this was a lie that they promulgated. Have we had any military officer, retired officer, any of them who have said, I was mistaken. I said that Trump was militarizing law enforcement so that he could have a calm to take advantage and manipulate the situation to divide us by having a photo op. That was untrue. Or have they said, if we're going to criticize Trump for even considering the use of federal troops in places like Minneapolis or Seattle, then by all fairness, I must also condemn the use of 30,000 troops following a much smaller uh, riot in the Capitol 6th, uh, so-called assault on the Capitol. Has any of them said that? No. Have any of our intelligence community said, you know, during the campaign, we came out and we signed a petition saying that Hunter laptops, uh, the discovery of Hunter 
Biden's laptop was a Russian disinformation campaign. And we did it with a wink and nod that Trump was behind it or Rudy Giuliani, et cetera. We are sorry. That is an authentic laptop. And Hunter will not deny what's on. Does any of them said that? No. So if you're not going to correct a lie and the narrative has no consequences for your career, then you're back into Jeffrey Tubin. This is, the, this is a journalistic masturbatory com- counterpart to what Tubin actually did. And there's no, there's no consequences for it. And yet, as you said with Tubin, if any, and you quoted Megyn Kelly, and she knows and you know that if, if anybody had said the opposite about Joe Biden and completely fabricated four or five narratives that, you know, ate up $40 million in 22 months in the Robert Mueller investigation or endangered, endangered, uh, our response to the COVID uh, crisis or the treatment of people suffering from COVID or endangered the relationship between the military and the civilian population, then I don't know, they would probably, they would be disgraced. They'd be over with. That would be the end of it if the left had their way. So it's very disturbing because I get up some morning, I think maybe you do too, and you think, wait a minute, this is the United States. Why are people in solitary confinement, essentially, as Julie Kelly's written after the Capitol riot, when there was no arms insurrection? Nobody died violently except a 14-year military veteran who was shot while she was unarmed by a officer that the Capitol Police will not release his or her name, nor will they release thousands of hours of video. And why is that when 14,000 people were arrested in the greatest series of riots in U.S. history, and most of them were were let go and very few were indicted, and I don't think we've had any convictions. And so when you look at this and then this asymmetrical media, you think, wow, you know, George Orwell was a novelist. That was just something that he right. thought up, but and that, or that was the Soviet Union. It couldn't happen here, but it's in, incrementally, insidiously happening. And I think all of us know now that if we say certain words that are offensive or we do certain things the left doesn't like, that the military, industrial, intelligence, political apparatus has a way of destroying a person's life. And that's deterrent. It's a deterrent they're using. Well, let's get on that point then, Victor. I was going to talk about it a little later, but you have your piece for American Greatness uh, titled, This Isn't Your Father's Left-Wing Revolution. I want to remind folks, go to the American Greatness website if you want to read this or any other you know, piece. Victor writes it twice a week. Um, the subtitle of this piece is, Today's Revolutionaries Aren't Fighting the Man. They they are the man. And if I, let me just read the end of this, Victor. And if you want to back, back into uh, what you wrote throughout the piece, uh, you wrote uh, here, you write here, our, our revolutionaries hate dissent. They destroy any who question their media-spun hoaxes like, Russian collusion, the bad origin of COVID-19, or the idea that Hunter Biden's laptop was a Russian plant. Truth is their enemy, and fear is their weapon. 60s paranoid revolutionaries warned about George Orwell's 1984, but our revolutionaries are 1984. While this elitist leftist revolution is more dangerous than its sloppy 1960s predecessor, it is also more vulnerable given its obnoxious top heavy apparatus, but only if the proverbial people finally say to their madness, enough is enough. Victor, tell us why this revolution is not 
our father's left-wing revolution. You know, I was in high school and I graduated from high school in 1971. And then I went to UC Santa Cruz and I watched this, you know, from a rural high school, there wasn't much of it here in Central California, but I watched it on television or I was advised about it by my parents or I had an older brother who was a little bit more aware of things, but it was a cultural malice revolution. And as I wrote, it had everything between get rid of your old plastic glasses and put on wire rims, grow your hair long, wear tie dye, don't shave your legs if you're a woman, don't wear a bra, don't wear a patchouli oil, not a regular perfume, uh, say the F word. And I remember being in a class in UC Santa Cruz where a person passed wind and everybody laughed and said, well, that's, uh, that's what we do now and go barefooted. Okay. But it was sort of a, as I said, a sloppy, it wasn't very well organized. Not to say that there wasn't SDS murderers and weathermen murderers, but they were a small minority. Most of the people were just along for the good time ride. Mm -hmm. And when we started getting lottery, when I turned 18, I got a lottery number. And when I later in the year, I think it was in 72, they abolished the draft. When they did, when they started giving lottery numbers and people, uh, half of the protest movement knew they would never go. And then the, when they quickly then into the draft, that whole movement collapsed. It really did. And then the oil embargo of 73 and the economy. So it wasn't a serious revolution. And it was sort of a live and let live, let it all hang out, do your own thing, drop out, tune in, turn on. But this thing is different. These are serious Maoists. And as I wrote in the piece, in that revolution of the 60s, people were marching on the Pentagon. They weren't inside the Pentagon, setting Korean-like brainwashing sessions. In that revolution, there was they were trying to say, you know, F the police from the free speech area at Berkeley or Stanford or Harvard or Yale. They weren't the administrators saying, don't dare use free speech as they are now. Mm -hmm. So, and they were the ones that were saying, you know, love the one you're with. They were not the one that said, you know, he winked at me a different way. And that was a right. sexual harassment moment. They, were, they weren't Victorian. Yeah. And uh, so what I'm getting at is that these revolutionaries were not very serious people. But this time around, they are the establishment. And I've, as I said before, they've run the corporate boardrooms, as we saw with Coca-Cola and Disney and Delta. They are they run Silicon Valley, as you can see. They can block the president of the United States from expressing an idea. They don't do that with the, the bloodthirsty leaders of Hamas and Iran, but they do it with the pre ex-president. They can control the way we communicate. They control the way that we search on Google. They monopolize professional sports. They have a monolithic message that all the athletes parrot every time um, they suit up for a game. They control the content of television and movies and even commercials. They control uh, Wall Street. I think everybody in Wall Street realizes that you have to be pretty liberal and you have to mouth certain platitudes. I could go on and foundations, most of the great foundations in terms of endowment are all left wing. So right. this, these are the revolutionaries. So people are saying, well, why are they doing that then? Well, they're doing that. And part of them, half of them are doing it because they're afraid that Robespierre and the Committee on Public, uh, Public Safety is going to come after them, the woke police. But the other uh, feels that, 
I got so much money. I got so much prestige that every once in a while I'll say I have honor and white privilege if I happen to be a white person or if I happen to be a minority person, I'll have to say I really suffered here or I, I there was this woman who didn't really understand that she committed a microaggression against me. And they feel that they have the power, the influence and the latitude to get around the consequences of their own ideology. No better example, Jack, than the Obamas. So they're worth about $100 million. They have this Colorama mansion in Washington, this $15 million Martha Vineyard seaside estate. And every once in a while, they venture out of their castle and say, this is a racist, horrible country, da, 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 da. My kids are in danger of all these white races running around. And then they go back in as if they've done their, their duty and that nobody's you know, nobody will ever get into their estate. Remember that. If right. we really do have defunded and underfunded the police, there's enough security around the Martha Vineyard estate that they're not going to live the consequences of their own advocacy. Well, Victor, let's uh, move on to um, a new controversy that bubbled up uh, this past week. And again, we're recording on June 11th. <clears throat> so on Monday, which would probably be the 7th, uh, Elena, however, Congresswoman Omar, <clears> or <throat> she says her first name, apologize, uh, from Minnesota, she got into a contretemps with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. And I'm reading from a news report here right now. And it, in the actual exchange, Ms. Omar pressed for an investigation of human rights abuses, both by Israeli security forces and by Hamas. But on Twitter, she seemed to compare Israel and the United States not only to Hamas, considered a terrorist group by the State Department, but also to the Taliban. Here's what she tweeted. We must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. Well, Victor, that did not go over well with some of her Democrat colleagues. And within a day or two, a dozen uh, Jewish members of the House, Democrats all, put out this uh, short statement. Equating the United States and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban is as offensive as it is misguided, ignoring the differences between democracies governed by the rule of law and contemptible organizations that engage in terrorism, at best discredits one's intended argument, and at worst reflects deep-seated prejudice. The United States and Israel are imperfect, and like all democracies, at times deserving of critique. But false equivalencies give cover to terrorist groups. We urge Congresswoman Omar to clarify her words, placing the U.S. and Israel in the same category as Hamas and the Taliban. So that was the volley. And here's the return volley, Victor, and then we'll have you please pont uh, give us your thoughts on all this. She tweets back the next day. It's shameful for colleagues who call me when they need support to now put out a statement asking for quote unquote clarification and not just call. The Islamophobic tropes in this statement are offensive. The constant harassment and silencing from the signers of this letter is unbearable. I, wow, I could sense the unbearability. Victor, there is trouble in Nancy Pelosi paradise. What do you make of this? What do you have to say about this? Well, <laughs> where to start? Notice that one of the things about the left is that when they call people terrible things and, and blasphemy people and 
use character assassination or equate a democratic society with terrorists and anybody just says in a very polite way that's wrong and then they go back to the i'm the victim i'm the wounded fawn how dare you it's been unbearable why did you suggest that you're an islamophobe and so for us to have a conversation about any any major issue i think everybody that's listening and you and i jack we all have to start with the premise it doesn't work Call me a racist, call me a sexist, call me a homophobe, call me an Islam. I don't care. And until we are liberated, we're going to be captives of this paradigm. And so that's the first thing to remember. She's no more a victim than anybody. Second, when she says we need accountability, I agree. Here's my suggestion. You want people to be accountable for what you say. You came into this country, supposedly your brother was in England and you, there was a serious allegation that you married him for immigration entree. And then you had a common law husband that you were not married to. And that, that came to the attention of authorities that came to attention of the public. And you never really address that, that you have to be accountable, explain that weird paradox and also explain that why your current husband was a campaign, uh, what, a contractor that you pass money to for services rendered? Is that ethical? I want some accountability. And then the third thing is, Jack, there were 12 people that signed that letter. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, there's, yeah, two, there's, there's 219 Democratic representatives in the House. Are you telling me that what, that you only got about 5% of the Democratic house body that is shocked that she compared a constitutional consensual society to a terrorist organization like the Taliban and Hamas. And that's all that could muster signatures, 12 people with maybe a lukewarm milk toast commentary from Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer. That's it. And that really shows you something about the democratic party and what, why, what am I getting at the democratic party caucused and people said, well, wait a minute. It's kind of crazy what she said, but I got a midterm in the year and a half. Mm -hmm. And if I get primaried by some nutty woke person or AOC and Representative Talib and Omar unleash their furies, I could get primaried. I could even lose or I could be weakened for the for the general. So I fear these people more than I do the Republicans. So I'm just going to be quiet. And that's that's where we at. And then for the 12 who signed it. Uh, I read their their petition. It was almost bewilderment. How can this be happening in the right. Democratic Party? That doesn't don't people know that Israel is a, a democratically run society? Don't they understand that it it was attacked? Where's the logic? We don't we don't understand what's happened. And the answer is that these people are not Democrats. They're hardcore Marxists. And finally, when when she talks about this is more controversial accountability. There has to be some idea of gratitude. So her family came from war-torn Somalia, and that was not a result of anything the United States did. And they chose the United States. They had all places to go all over the world, but they chose the United States. And no sooner did she get here, she got immediately with her family entitlements, state assistance, educational subsidies, and then guess what? In a district that is overwhelmingly white with strong minority participation, she was elected to public office a series of times. So if this is an, is an unfair or systematically, systemically, I should say, racist society, then her whole career would make no sense. And when you 
put that whole, all in the totality, you think at one time she would praise the United States. Instead, she compares us with the worst regimes in the world. And she does that because she feels that her political constituency in left-wing Minnesota uh, will approve of it. As sort of, she's playing a court gesture to the public. Right. And that's the role she's decided to play. It's, she gets attention, she gets hits, downloads, page views, you know, uh, clicks, that's what she does. But it, is she, as far as being a responsible House member or drafting legislation, no. All her purpose is is to keep calling people racist. And so more influence, power, money, attention accrues to herself. And I think everybody in the Democratic Party that's got any brains left knows that. Well, Victor, since we're talking a, a little bit about farm uh, matters here with uh, on Israel, let's stick overseas and let me lump these two together, even though they, I'm sure they deserve their own podcast. Um, first of all, Joe Biden is at the G7 summit. And uh, I don't know what you make of these things uh, at all. I, I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of media attention. I, I don't really know what um, they account for when all said and done, but there he is. He's abroad representing the United States. I would argue probably from a, a week, weaker position than, there was a year ago. So your thoughts, first, your thoughts on, you know, Biden and general foreign policy at this point, given where he is and who he's meeting with. And the second part is the vice president who was down in Guatemala uh, last, uh, well, earlier this week and has been her, her trip there and her responses, her talks have been widely criticized, including by, uh, presidents of, uh, of of Mexico, I think Guatemala, I think El Salvador, uh, on the point of why is there border madness in the United States? It's because of you. It's because of your incoming administration turned on the green light and essentially said, uh, come. Uh, of course, the vice president still has yet to go to that border. She said she was down in Guatemala to see the root causes of why there's trouble at the border. I don't think she used the word trouble, but you know, maybe it's actually a strange thing that some recognition that, oh, there is a problem. Um, anyway, Victor, uh, she kind of uh, had a bad week, I think. What do you make of what she, her performance and any consequences? And again, uh, Joe Biden, uh, as America stands now with its uh, G7 allies, I don't even know if they're allies anymore. Well, ostensibly, the Europeans and even the people in the G7 are delighted that the United States now is a globalist, uh, multilateralist, UN, EU, pro-EU advocate. And so when Klaus Schwab at this Davos crowd and the International Economic Forum says he's going to have the Great Reset, and that is he's going to aggregate power with Bill Gates and Prince Charles and... Uh, the Chinese billionaires, and they're all going to get together in a room and tell us what's good on climate change, identity politics, open borders. They they couldn't really get that off the ground because of Donald Trump. And now they're delighted. I mean, you can see almost immediately the G7 is going to, th- thinks they want to implement a global 15% tax on corporations. I have no problem with corporations paying more because they don't pay enough, some of them. But my point is that they're telling countries all over the world, Ireland or Singapore, if you don't comply and you think you're going to undercut us, then we're going to consider you an international scab. 
because we're not going to use lower tax rates anymore to get corporations to come to Ireland. We are going to have a uniform global governance. It's kind of scary. Platonic guardians are going to rule the world. And that was going to be completely impossible. But then they got this gift. They got the gift on the one hand that Joe Biden agrees with them, and maybe he's more left than they are. And two, he doesn't seem to be in full control of his faculty. So they feel Mm -hmm. that he's um, easily, easily persuadable if he should be stubborn. That said, they have to be very careful, though, because remember the game the Europeans and these internationals play with the United States. It's we are Socrates and you're Caesar. You're the legions that are unthinking with all the organization and power, and we're the philosophers and robes that tell you what to do and, and think of the great ideas. So you're the enforcer, and the way the game is played, we ankle bite you all the time, call you all hillbillies and you know dupes and deplorables, and then you, when there's a problem, whether it's World War One or World War Two or crazy people in Korea or the Soviets or the Berlin Wall, you bail us out. You protect Japan, you protect, that's your role. Okay, so they don't want somebody like them. And so now they're getting somebody like them in spades and they're thinking, this is wonderful. The United States is going to give all this money to the Palestinians. They're going to get back on the Iran deal. They're going to get back in the Paris Accord. They're not going to press us on NATO contributions. They're going to have the UN adjudicate uh, the use of force. This is wonderful. And then they're thinking, hmm. What if Vladimir Putin goes into Western Ukraine? What if he starts bullying the Baltic states? What is is Joe Biden going to do? Have a conference? He's supposed to go say, listen, Putin, do not have territorial acquisition or else. And then the Europeans are supposed to say, how dare you? That's so unilateral. But then quietly have a sigh. That whole game is in danger now with a guy like Biden, just as it was with Jimmy Carter. And they used to damn Reagan, and they were relieved about Reagan. Oh, he brought in Pershing missiles, that warmonger. He's going to have a nuclear winter. And then and privately, you talk to him. It's, wow, Jimmy Carter's not there anymore. Thank God. So that's what's going on there. As far as Kamala Harris, I think what the Biden administration is doing is anytime there's a issue that will be controversial and it's a lose-lose situation, they're going to have Kamala as tip of the spear fixer because there is no solution to the mess that they've created because the solution, it would be Trump's solution. By that, I mean the border was secure. It was calm. Finally, we had great success with the wall and we really, you know, the South American governments you mentioned, uh, Central American and Mexico, they feel they went out on a limb for Trump and now they've been sawed off by by Biden. But the point I'm making is that a lot of these leaks about how unimpressive she was are coming from the Biden people. Mm-hmm. And they're being fed to CNN and MSNBC. So when she appears on there, she wants to say, you know, I'm a person of color and I'm a woman and I'm from California and I'm PC and I can just giggle and chortle and ha <laughs> yeah. And they actually, Lester Holt, and they actually said, well, when are you going to the border? And you well, haven't shocking, gone there. Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. And, and then she's saying, wait a minute, you know what she's thinking? Who in that Biden administration, who, who did this? Who told you you could ask these things? So she's in a weird position that I think from now on, uh, Biden is protecting his turf. And whereas 
the the general opinion was that he won't be there much longer. Now it is we're going to neutralize, emasculate, put on ice Kamala Harris because every time we have, as I said, a crisis that we don't want to deal with and there is no solution, we're going to put her in charge and she's going to look like an idiot. And then people are going to say to us what they said with Richard Nixon during the Watergate. Well, he may be an SOB or crazy, but you don't want Agnew. Right. And, and then that you may be, you maybe think Joe doesn't know where he is, but she knows where he, she is. And it's even scarier. Yeah. And so I think that's what she's doing. And you can even see it with Jill, ba- Jill Biden, you know, Mrs. First Lady when this is Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. It's Edith Wilson all over again. And, and Biden is not, I guess, technically in a coma like Wilson was in 1919, but he's close. Uh, he's sometimes seems comatose, but she's, sort of parading herself around and to reassure the American public, she's got a binder, she's a doctor, she's going to be a partner with Joe and you don't need to get rid of him and put Kamala in. And she hates Kamala Harris. Remember that during that, right. uh, that debate, when Kamala said to Joe, you're a racist, right. basically, she came up after the debate and confronted her and said, how dare you say that to my husband? So there's no love lost there at all. So that, that, dynamic and that paradigm is going to be increasingly frequent where Jill is going to be very high profile. Joe's uh, exposure to the public is going to be increasingly curtailed and Kamala is going to be forced to go out in places and wait Jack till she gets to the border. Cause at some point she'll have to go. She'll have to. Or look, she'll have to, because even the left is asking. And when she goes there, it's going to be a mess, except, you know, maybe J- they'll have Trump's policies for two weeks to calm it down before she arrives, deport a bunch of people, finish the wall, or maybe she'll go where the wall is. But the point I'm making is if she goes there and if it's the 1 million immigrant who have come in disaster still, then it's not going to look good. Somebody's going to say, well, are those cages that you used to deplore over there with all those children stuck in them? Then another journalist, you know, somebody from Fox is going to say, well, wait a minute, you're, President Biden is lecturing us on that we all have to get vaccinated, even children, and there's some side effects to it. But how about all those kids over there? Are they vaccinated? Is that guy vaccinated? Is that woman vaccinated? How come a million people come in without a vaccination, and yet you're making people who have already had the virus and children under the age of 12 at some risk to their health, according to quote unquote the science, you're making them be vaxxed, but these people get what? An exemption? Are you saying to us? that U.S. citizens have less rights than foreign nationals? Is that what you're saying? So you can see what could happen. It could yeah. be an explosive, unscripted. Yeah, she'll cackle in, in the midst of that. She and will. Then, that's how, that's how she'll use the Hillary defense. Hillary always did that. Remember, she right. just started cackling and laughing as it was absurd. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think it's going to work. What do you mean, with the cloth? <laughs> that idiocy yeah. with Hillary. All right, well, Victor, we've got <clears throat> two um, big articles to uh, round out uh, the program with one you wrote and one is by uh, David Marcus. Let's talk about the one you wrote and it's, it's for American greatness. Again, folks, that's the website and uh, you, that's where Victor uh, writes uh, twice a week, the lethal wages of uh, Trump derangement madness. Victor, you're the point of this very long detailed uh, essay um, I don't want to put people off. I mean, it's 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 a it's not that long. It's not War and Peace. It's a great read. Uh, is that uh, there's been a bloody toll 
as a consequence of Trump derangement system. And again, let me read the end of this piece, Victor, because, you know, folks listen to the podcast, not everyone goes to the website, just so, so for a little context, and then you could please back into uh, what you, what preceded this. You, you end this piece by saying the lethal examples of the wages of a rational and deranged Trump hatred are nearly countless. A once calm Trump border is now the scene of utter chaos, misery and death as the erstwhile advocates of immigrant children abruptly grow mute. A once calm Middle East and the successful Abraham Accords disappeared and were supplanted by mayhem, death, and destruction. A once booming energy sector and inexpensive fuels are now mired amidst spiking prices at the pump and then to new federal gas and oil leases on federal lands, the National Wildlife National Wildlife Reserve put off limits and pipeline projects canceled, irrationally hating everything Donald Trump touched was not just pathological, it often became downright scary and deadly for Americans. Victor, we you talk about this piece? It's very dangerous to be deductive, and that is not to be empirical, just as a matter of Pavlovian knee-jerk reaction to something you don't like, and then that encompasses a whole rejection of everything associated with it. We all know that. I want the economy to boom, and we have high GDP right now. I do not want inflation. I don't want people getting paid not to work. If Joe Biden can solve that problem and stop this crazy subsidies uh, that have more incentives for people to stay home than to reenter the workforce, and if he can restrain inflation, I will be so happy and I'll praise him. Yeah. However, when you're deductive, as they are with Trump, it's not just that you look foolish, that you, you cause a lot of harm. So when you, when you insist, insist that Trump is crazy for even thinking that that lab had anything to do with this pangolin or that bat, then what you're basically saying is we're going to suspend all judgment, inquiry, examination, analysis of the origins of this virus. And that meant very early in January and February and March, we took China's word for it on a lot of things. Bill Gates said to do it. Fauci said to do it. CDC said to do it. And that's dangerous. People died. Had we known in January or February where this thing came from, we could have said right away, why don't you put the army around that viral lab because these two people have died in it. We could have done things like that. We could, we could have forced the WHO to say, let's have a quarantine immediately. But when it was this, you know, just a natural thing, it was kind of like things happen. Just, you know, there's a bat here. He just kind of flew around and kind of crapped on somebody's head or he got his wing cut up in a market and we couldn't help it. So it was a very different response predicated on the origins. The same thing with hydroxychloroquine, the same thing uh, with Russian collusion. We wasted a critical amount of money and time uh, to pursue this farce of Russian collusion. We did a real, we did a lot of damage to our security because we did something that Kissinger and a lot of skilled diplomats said never do. We drove Russia into the arms of China and we were supposed to triangulate between these two atrocious regimes so that neither one liked each other more than they liked us right. and they didn't do this. So that I think it's just not a, that hatred of Trump and everything he did was not benign. And we're really seeing it on the border, as you read, and, and with energy as well. Well, Victor, um, you just mentioned hydroxychloroquine, and we talked about it last week, but I just want to restate, again, you know, the, the studies coming out and some of the experts think uh, there, there's over 100,000 
unnecessary deaths as if, as if there was a necessary death. But 100,000 people died because of the politicized ban on that on that drug. So get obviously it's the point of your of your piece. There are lethal wages to Trump, Trump derangement syndrome. And the only reason it was banned was because Donald Trump mentioned the word. So Victor, let's move on and uh, well, end the show, but close the show with the discussion of a piece you uh, sent to me earlier in the, in the week. It's by David uh, Marcus. He's a New York writer, writes for the Federalist. He's got a book coming out on, on the pandemic. He wrote this piece for Fox news was published on June 6th. The title of it is The Periodic Table of the New American Right. It's really interesting piece, goes down rabbit holes, has all kinds of, you know, I don't know as much as a periodic table. I think it was kind of zoological because he's looking at what is the right now and classifying. He has about six or seven, um, you know, clusters of where people might fit in. But let me just read the beginning of this piece. And Victor, um, he makes some claims um, your th- and I'd like to get your, your thoughts on the validity of some or all or invalidity of any of it. So here's, here's what, uh, this again, David Marcus, the periodic table of the new American right. At a modest distance from the presidency of Donald Trump, one thing has become entirely clear. The American conservative movement has irrevocably changed. The aftermath of the Capitol riot was the fierce last stand of the old guard, marshaled by uh, Mitch McConnell as Cheney, Mitt Romney. The attempt to turn back the clock and restore the Republican Party to what it had been for the last 25 years, utterly failed. For a few days, there seemed to be an opening, but honestly, there never was. Now, Cheney is out of the leadership. There is no going back. What is not so clear is what the conservative movement looks like and represents in the wake of Trump. This lack of clarity is rooted in the fact that the new right is still being created, still in its populist swaddling clothes. Everyday American conservatives are forging in the smithy of their politics, the conscience of this new party. What can be identified and described in these early days are the factions that are framing the elements of this new political force. These elements point, at least in broad contours, to what the future holds for the new right. So guess, Victor, that's how he launches this piece. And I guess the, the basic claim you know, we're, we're now at an irrevocable point. It's we've turned, we're in a new dimension uh, of what it means to be conservative. Uh, do you agree with uh, David Marcus's premise? And if you would like to say anything else about the piece. I'm not sure it matters what I agree. It just matters what the facts are. And it seems to me that people who would disagree with him and let's see who, whether they would be <laughs> former, former Senator Jeff Flake or Liz Cheney, or the dispatch people, or the Lincoln Project, or the Bulwark, do they have a viable alternative to him? And the answer is no. And then I would say, what do the polls show? And the polls show that the MAGA agenda and the Trump popularity, it's its about 90% are, gonna, are for that agenda. So what was that agenda that he's trying to in a very systematic and I think scientific fashion, express all of the contradictions or problems or or future of. And it was largely a Republican agenda in a sense of conservative judges, opposition to abortion on demand as far as social issues go, uh, limited government, distrust of the bureaucracies. But there were these these wrinkles that Trump introduced. One was free trade is not fair trade. 
So if they dump or they steal patents or copyrights, we're not going to trade with them. And we're going to, and tariffs are not the T word anymore. And then the second one was, we don't want to go in the Middle East because these optional military engagements don't pencil out in a cost benefit matter. And we have to close the border until, uh, for, until we have legal only in, uh, immigration that was new. And then I think another one was the Middle West uh, the area between Michigan and you know Alabama or Ohio to Nevada, that's not, don't write that off. They may have not done well in globalization, but that's not because they're deplorables or they're clingers. It's because you guys in Washington and New York uh, created a bi-coastal culture and you deprecated muscular labor, which was more efficient and more ecologically and humanitarily sound than what goes on in China or Mexico or other places in the world where you people outsource and offshore. So that was the, the wrinkles. And he's trying to say that that's not, that's not gonna go away. I think he's right. And we look at the potential candidates for 2024, look at them. I don't think Pompeo or Tom Cotton or DeSantis or Christy Nome or any or Mike Pence are going to run on anything but that MAGA agenda. So then he says, well, there are contradictions. And yeah, I mean, you and I know the rules of capitalism, where you like them or not, are the rules of the world. That's the way people think. They mimic individual behavior. So there is such a thing as Schumpauer's creative destruction. If you, you know, subsidize, subsidize, subsidize smokestack industries and they, they don't modernize, that's bad. But what he's trying to say is, but you just don't say creative destruction uh, justifies just destroying vast swaths of people's lives. You work with people, you try to train them, you try to tell employers, is there ways that we could use government policy that would still make us efficient rather than just the law of a jungle? He's trying to search for that medium, in other words. And he says there's a lot of groups that will be part of this equation. There's a suburban soccer mom, there's the Catholic cultural issues group. There's small business people. There's people in the new minority community who feel that they're getting shorted by democratic policies on energy, gasoline, uh, checkbook issues, workplace issues, all because they're supposed to be captives of this critical race hypnosis. And they don't, they don't want to do it. So it's a pretty comprehensive attempt to say that the mega agenda is here. A lot of groups are buying into it for different reasons. And now we need a theory of uniformity to galvanize it and to make sure that these coalitions stay, stay there and it can win. I think the missing tessera of this mosaic is that no one knows uh, the role yet of Donald Trump. I think it depends right. on the news cycle, how Biden does, whether he's gonna run or not. But I think most people feel whether he runs or not, his agenda that he created is now institutionalized. And number two, his attitude that you cannot deal with the hard left and you have to fight back 24 seven is correct. But the third issue is, well, do you have to do it on Twitter and make fun of people personally and get in the ad hominem? And that's about a 50-50 debate right there. And people are saying, can you have the agenda and the fiery pushback, but not gratuitously say to Anthony Fauci, you, you throw like a girl, you don't know how to yeah. throw a baseball. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't have, I don't think people have an answer for that because they feel that if they're not sure yet that a guy like DeSantis that's right on the Trump agenda and right in fiery pushing back can fill a stadium of 50,000 right. people.
because he he's part of an establishment as all the candidates are and he can't go in there and just say anything at any time anyone anywhere the way that trump has and that has an appeal to people right yeah well trump he cannot be he cannot be replicated no neither can victor davis hansen so victor i want to say as we close here uh to thank our readers and uh, readers well I think you should thank readers and people who go to victorhanson.com and read your, read your material there, but thank our listeners. And I just want to draw attention point to This is the fourth or fifth or sixth podcast we've recorded. We're now on just the news. That's John Solomon's um, website and podcast base and other podcasts on this. Just the news are uh, Jenna Ellis and Cheryl Atkinson. John Solomon has his podcast and you know, this is not bragging, but uh, this show, you know, we were on National Review. We had a podcast on National Review for over a year, and it takes a while to build an audience and was somewhat highly rated and ranked. And if people had trouble finding um, this podcast, but they found it already, many of them, and it's doing uh, very well. And it's gotten a number of very strong uh, reviews. So we want to encourage people, you know, listen where you can, uh, subscribe where you can download but if you do listen on uh itunes it's now available on itunes you've you've got 88 reviews victor uh, they're all five stars uh, and, and some of the some of the comments people have left are are really terrific i just i want to read one there's a, it's by someone named Bracktoon, and he wrote he writes there is no voice more clear no mind is sound no thinker as grand as vdh listen in awe as Professor Hansen weaves together huge swaths of the human epic and relates them to ever-maddening world. Thank you, sir. The title of that post was Get Smarter and Calmer as You Listen. Uh, there are many others like it. We thank folks who are listening to this podcast and thank folks who are uh, leaving uh, reviews. Again, we do, um, Victor and I, have two podcasts a week. This is The Traditionalist. We also do The Classicist. And uh, if Victor, if there's anything else you want to say about the expanding platform of, of oh, uh, David Hansen on the air, please say so. Well, our colleague and engineer, Sammy, uh, interviews me. We're just starting one called The Culturalist. And we just did the first one on the role of Homer as a historian and a cultural critic and a literary uh, epic poet. And then we talked about that tradition as it, as it reappeared in Greek tragedy and as it applies to the tragic. We've talked about this before, you and I, Jeff, but we went in depth about yeah. the foundations of tragic heroes in the military, common uh, everyday American life, and Western movies. And then next week, this week, I should say, we're going to talk about underappreciated people in history that we don't really give them their due for a variety of reasons. Did you talk about Shane? Because if you did, I have to listen. Yeah, we did. We did talk okay. about Shane. Okay. Shane, Shane come home and yeah, all, yeah. The, all of the tensions there. But um, what we, a terrific we, movie. we said that he was a disruptive force for all yeah. of his kindness, and he is. Anyway, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in once again. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks, Victor. Um, we're going to record another podcast uh, for, next, for this coming week. Again, we're, we are recording on uh, Friday the 11th. And so sometime during Flag Week... Uh, we'll be out there flying another one up the flagpole. Hope, folks, you all salute it. Thanks very much. And we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Traditionalist. Yeah.